Welcome to the Tech Sales Show, dedicated to making you a better seller. Recorded 4,827 miles across the Atlantic Ocean with Bobby Das from Houston, Texas, a father, husband, golfer, pilot, and tech seller. And Brian Evans, an expat in London, England, family man, 2X Ironman, and an ERP salesman. Both sharing tried and true sales strategies and providing free tools to make each week and campaign easier for you. They also answer your questions weekly. Now, here is Bobby and Brian. What's up, Brian? Hey, hey, Bobby. We've had some great pickup on the podcast. It's been outstanding. So we thank you all for listening, for giving us your feedback. The tools section on our website, Bobby, continues to be the number one hit part of the website, which I don't think is a huge surprise, um, but it's fantastic. We love to see it. I'd still say if you want to see these tools in a different format, don't hesitate to let us know. Please give us that feedback. We want to adapt these tools to be more useful for you. So if, you, if you'd like to see it in sort of a, a different format, reach out, let us know. Um, I would ask if you could do a couple things for us or maybe a few things for us. If you're enjoying the podcast, please go out to the iTunes store and give us a five-star rating. If we've earned it, if we haven't, shoot us a note. Info at bobbyandbrian.com. We'd love to get your feedback on the podcast. Yeah, and if you would also, from that point, go to YouTube and search and find our channel, either The Tech Sales Show or Bobby and Brian. And we have a goal. Well, we have a need to get to 100 subscribers so that uh, the content picks up, the sharing picks up, but we can also customize our URL. Small ask if you wouldn't mind going out and subscribing to our YouTube channel. And one final thing, if we're not being too greedy here, uh, Facebook has been a great medium for us to uh, gain listeners. It's the number one traffic referral for us. So if you could uh, share the posts that you find interesting, whether that's a quote that we put out, a book review, a podcast session, whatever you find most interesting, we'd love it if you'd share it with your network. Perfect. And with that, why don't we start with one of y'all's asks love from it. listeners. We have a few questions that have come in, and we're going to reflect and answer on those questions today. So first question for you, Brian, and we'll both chat about it a little bit. What questions do you ask a prospect when you want to understand their buying process? Yep, it's a great one. Um, it, this is something I, I love, kind of the psychology behind it. Uh, this is kind of the art and the science of sales. Uh, so I love these types of questions. Um, there's a lot of things you're measuring here, right? You don't want to, when you ask this question, if you do it in the wrong tone, you don't want to come across like you don't trust them to lead the project, right? They, they've been... Presumably, they've been a great uh, sponsor for you uh, and a coach for you potentially in this deal. So, you don't you don't want them to come. You don't want it to come across like you don't trust them in this process. You also need to get a truthful answer, right? Yeah. So, you mean when you're talking to that IT director and the IT director <laughs> says, "I make the decision," I and then the I write the check. That's you, right. And that's it. What you just you don't you don't just believe that and then walk out the door. Yeah. I mean, it always works out in your favor when you do that, right? Um, and then there's yeah. for some reason he always has one more person he has to check with at the at the final stage. So the goal here is to actually get past that. That's a little awkward, of course. But um, yeah. what ways do you get around that when that's the only answer you get? I, I, the most common way I do this, and this is really my approach to a lot of uh, the sales process, is I express it to the prospect in a way of this is how I've seen other customers do it before. So it kind of takes the pressure off of you're, you're not the only one that has to go through uh, maybe a committee or a board for approval. 
So the way I'll articulate this is I'll say, hey, I mentioned to you that uh, customer XYZ, you know, that, that just signed with us last week that you're, you're set up to do a, uh, a call with, a reference call with. Um, they, they signed with us, of course, and they wouldn't mind telling you that they had to do an internal business case. And then they had to take that business case to a committee. That committee had to sign off on it. And then it had to go to the board for approval. And that's a pretty common uh, process for a project of this size. So, you know, I'm just trying to understand, is your process similar? Do you have to go through kind of a subcommittee and then the board for approval? And Bobby, what I find is that it, it kind of takes the stigma off of um, them. They don't have to be the person that approves this, especially if it's a major project, right? Yeah, and I think what one last trick that I would use, Brian, to get someone to help me understand their process is to ask them how they did, how did it work last time? So let's assume it's a million dollar deal. How did it work last time you guys did a million dollar deals? How many people had to be approvers? How many people outside of just the IT organization had to sign off on it? Who pays for this type of business? Asking all these questions and guiding them again, they'll be thankful because they might not have ever done it. If they say we've never done a deal of this size, no, you have more risk potentially, and you're going to have a whole lot more approvers in, in line for that. Very rarely is the IT manager or director that you might be working with have a million-dollar signing allowance. Uh, so help guide them because it's going to bite you. And lastly, I love to use it as my reverse timeline. So if it's no going to go all the way to the CEO, then that's going to take a month. There's four signatures along the way. I try to put a signature on each Wednesday and make sure that those don't slip. If they do slip, your deal's at risk from the timing that you told your company it's going to come in. So all those will help them be more successful. It'll help you understand their buying process. And collectively, if you're working as partners, it's going to be a win-win scenario for both of you to get the deal over the line. Excellent. All right, next question, Bobby. All right, so uh, somebody wrote in. Uh, I've got a 5,000-seat opportunity of Salesforce.com seats. For those not familiar, Salesforce is a CRM product. I think everyone listening to this podcast probably knows that. So they've got a, an active opportunity of 5,000 seats of Salesforce. It's a late-stage deal. At the same company, the same prospect, they've got another group that's emerging with another 500-seat opportunity. However, that opportunity is at a very early stage. The question is, how do I balance this late stage, large deal, 5,000 seat opportunity with this new and up and coming deal? Well, with all emotions, of course. No, just <laughs> I mean, you have to be cognizant that they are probably separate deals. Every instance is going to be a little bit different. People listening may, may even hear these questions a little bit different. But let's assume, based on this question, that it's 5,000 seats in in. Uh, sales and finance, and this 500 seats is maybe over in manufacturing, com two completely separate groups. They're not talking to each other. I'm the only person that really knows there's two groups inside this company looking at them. And if that be the case, I'm managing them as two separate opportunities. I am not going to try and bring these together. I'm not going to let the little one slow the big one down. I'm going to try and keep them very segmented. I'd also really weigh the risk profile of both of these deals, meaning is 500 seats really going to change a 5,000 seat opportunity that I have at my fingertips? Probably not. That's only 10% delta. Um, it probably won't even change the pricing for the customer. So there's really no reason to intertwine the two. And then if that's pretty much null and void, then I'm still going to keep them separate. But then I'm going to think about who are the competitors in both cases. Am I up again? If I'm if I'm Salesforce, as the example says, do I have a Microsoft CRM online in there as well? Do I have Do It Yourself or some other third party in 
the big opportunity and then the little opportunity, I got this little ankle biter of some sort, this new and up and coming CRM only web development company that is a third of the price and really, really hungry. Well, that that could kill the 500 seat deal, which could steal my 5,000 seat deal. So I'm going to put all those things into a bucket that I'm going to call risk and decide how long do I keep them separate? When do I pull them together? And how do I make sure I wrap the, the account ownership around the appropriate account of the appropriate bucket of licenses? I doubt I'm going to tie them together unless there's some real competitive risk that, that causes me to do so. What about you, Brian? Yeah, I think it's great perspective. I think, um, you know, you mentioned it's it's that's only 10% of the larger deal. If this was 50% of the larger deal, or, or even 25% of the deal size. Big difference. Yeah, it's a big difference. So I, I think the approach I tend to take, and let's just assume in this case, let's assume that there's a new situation and it was 20 or 30% of the deal size. I think I'd ha- if I'm late stage in a bigger opportunity, then I've developed a, a good relationship or presumably a good relationship with that champion on the bigger deal. And I would probably have a pretty candid coffee conversation with him or her and just get their opinion on it, right? If, if, they're, if they were running a much bigger organization than the smaller organization, they're going to have a bit more clout when it comes to getting it approved. So they may tell you, hey, don't worry about it. It's, I've already gotten them up to speed. They're ready to go. But yes, you should talk to this person. Or no, we may need to back off here. Well, one thing that just jumped in my mind was let's assume this is a global for whatever reason, it's yep. a big global account. And the 500 seats happens to be sales and marketing of a parent company. And the 5,000 seats happens to be the division that's owned by the parent company. Completely different scenario there. Then I really want to make sure that I engage with the 500 seat group and include the 5,000 seat into that because there's probably an opportunity to sway the whole company. And 5,500 seats could become 25,000 seats. Again, very different dynamic there, but you have to understand those positions and what are they trying to accomplish and how can they benefit each other, deciding to join them or separate them. But 10% in that perspective could be a very big deal. Yeah. Like like you said, I think it really comes down to assessing the risk, do a real assessment of the risks, even if you have to do the traditional route of putting it in two different columns and and looking at them side by side and weighing it out. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, please continue to send in your questions. Uh, we love to get them. We love to have those conversations. So please con- uh, continue to send those to info at bobbyandbrian.com or post them on Facebook. So Bobby, today, episode three, series two of territory planning. And we're going to talk about the biggest part of any territory plan, and that's the pipeline and the funnel. So far in this series, what we've done so far on episode one was we talked about the ingredients of the territory plan. So we provided a territory planning checklist. Uh, we included the video to kind of walk you through that. Bobby, what did we do in episode two? Well, we talked about planning with your extended team, uh, communicating and building a culture of win and making sure that everybody was bought into the joint success plan of your territory plan. And then that includes partners. So we talked a little bit about how to engage with partners and how to share your stuff with partners. And we shared a tool we call partner visualization. Us in the U.S., we call it visualization. You (laughs) over there calling it visualization, something like that, Um, with an S instead of a Z. But at the end of the day, we shared the partner visualization tool uh, to help make it easy for partners to do business with you, the seller. Great. And like I said, today is all about pipeline and funnel. Funnel, that is. So I got a question for you, Bobby. Um, Fire away. 
Yeah. So, so many territory plans. Uh, how many, how many territory plans have you put together in your years in sales? A couple well, dozen? Last week, I, last week I listened to the podcast. I think I said I had six files in my, it's probably more than six, but yeah, a lot. A lot, right? So many territory plans I've seen over the years and including myself are in PowerPoint. Uh, the PowerPoint is uh, posted to a share file with your team after you've presented it to your team and to your manager and um, you file it away and you leave it alone. So that it begs the question, what if, if you're filing that territory plan away, is it the plan that really gets it? Does it is it the plan that really gets you there that helps you achieve your number? No, of course not. It's the actions that are hopefully designed in that plan that will help you get there. Uh, I was just having a daydream there of all the quarterly briefings that I've done. And it seems like at the end of every one of them, I get an email, send me your deck. And I've never been asked to review that deck with my boss in any circumstance. But no, of course, it's not the deck. It's the actions that are in that deck. And, And really, I think we've said it a bunch, a deck's not the best way to have a living document, right? We need another type of a document if we want it to be living. So have, have you ever had a deck help you make your number? No, never. I mean, for, for me, it's, and, and I've, I've just in all candidness, I've, I've switched to this just in the past several years is, don't get me wrong, there'll be times to where I've put it into PowerPoint, but I, I work off of a living, breathing, breathing uh, Google Sheets. And whether you prefer Excel or, or Google, it doesn't matter. But what it allows me to do is have a living document that I can keep up to date and I can use um, when I'm working with partners, whether I'm working with my inside sales team, working with my marketing team. It's just a very fluid way to manage what my objectives are. Like what, you know, we talked about it before, but you, we've got a mission statement, things that we want to accomplish, very measurable objectives. And this Google Sheet is my way of keep, keeping track of all that. So you've talked about this Google Sheet a lot, and I just so happen to know we're going to give everybody a template that they can use and work from that will be based on your template with some of my golden nuggets thrown in from my documents. But describe this to us. Everybody's listening. They're not going to be able to see it, but describe what's in your document. How do you use this sheet and what they can look forward to seeing? Yep. So it's, it's there's two big parts to this. The first one is every company that you and I have worked for over the years has the way they manage sales opportunities. They've got various stages. Sometimes it's based off percentages. Sometimes it's a number. Um, but every company does it slightly different, right? Well, for no me- No doubt. And they, they they all may have a different name, but they all pretty much mean the same things. So whether there's seven stages or six stages or eight stages, I think we can all say they're stages and they're fairly close. Yep. So I've narrowed it down it, for my case and what I've used for years in my Google Sheets is I've narrowed it down into four broad categories. And there are a couple subcategories to this too. And again, this is all, you can get this from the show notes today at bobbyandbrian.com. You can also get it at bobbyandbrian.com slash tools. So here are the categories and then let's talk about them. So the first one is disqualified. Um, So for me, disqualified is all about um, companies that I don't want to invest time with. Maybe they just bought from a competitor and they're not going to be in the market to evaluate us again uh, for, for several years. Right. And it's worth noting in the system of, you know, when they're going to be back uh, eligible to buy again. So let's talk about what, what an example of that very thing could be. So yep, let's use the Salesforce example we were talking about earlier. If they, if I'm a Salesforce sales rep and I know that a customer that I'm working with, I've lost to Microsoft CRM online 
for every sales user in their organization, and they've invest decided to invest a million dollars in consulting services to implement that and put it in. I, as the Salesforce sales rep, probably don't value a lot calling on that customer for ninety days, yeah, six months, a couple years. Probably a few years, yeah. yeah. So I can see that would be a good disqualified customer and could fall in that category. But you would, when would you want to call them back? If you're, if you stay in territory and you stay on these customers, I guarantee you they'd be on my call list in call it thirty months, yeah, somewhere in that two and a half year time frame. I'd definitely be calling them then. Yeah, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna proactively pull them off the marketing list, right? Unless they ask to be pulled off the marketing list. So if if we have a a webinar series going out, then sure, they're going to be part of that list. But I'm not, we have a finite, you've talked about the Tim Tim Ferriss four-hour work week in past podcasts and about how you really optimize your time. We have to maximize where we invest our time. Every prospect we have on our list can't be someone that yields fruit for us. So this is one I tend to push aside and really focus on where I can get the most value. So the second one, the second category, and, and if you if you want to visualize this, if you're if you're not in front of your computer right now, if you are in front of your computer, please pull it up, bobbyandbrian.com slash tools. If you're not in front of a computer, visualize disqualified is in the bottom left-hand corner of the spreadsheet, kind of out of sight, out of mind. Now, what's on the far left side above this is the passive list. So Bobby, these are companies that if they come to us, great. But I'm not going to proactively... Um, spend time myself prospecting to them, uh, having inside sales focus, working on them. And it could be for any number of reasons, right? Let's, let's go back to the soft choice days. If this is a customer that's an active reference for CDW, then I probably, it's probably not one that we need to invest a ton of time in. They're probably a pretty happy customer there. Maybe it's a company with my current job. Maybe they're not a great industry fit for us, but under the right circumstances, they could be a fit for them. So again, they're going to be on the marketing list. Um, I'm still going to share them as uh, an account that we're going after, but I'm not going to invest a ton of time with an account that's yep. on this list. And I can see an example from our Microsoft days. Um, I can think of one retailer that was a mid-market account in the Houston area that literally their PC and, and end-user strategy was to, when someone needed a desktop, they would go get the oldest item on their shelf that they couldn't sell and they would give that unit to their end user and that was their strategy no strategy in uh keeping the like devices managing those like devices it was it was truly a cost cutting measure for them and they would never see me as a strategic partner again passive list if they called me and said i'm interested in being strategic then of course i'd have that conversation but not one that i was calling on regularly yeah Okay, the next session, this is where the section is where we start to get more interesting. Um, in fact, this is where I spend a majority of my time uh, when it comes to prospecting. These are what I call narrow targets. Um, and I, you've got a, a unique way of doing this too that I really like, Bobby. But narrow targets, and let's just say every, every seller that's listening right now is going to have a different size list. You may have eight prospects you're calling into. You may have 800 prospects you're calling into. So the size of this narrow target list is going to vary, of course. But in my world, um, as, a, as, a, as a past account executive, in my world, this list will be 100% uh, checked off. I will have met with every company on this list. And, it's, and I'll break it up into quarters when I want to speak with these people. And it's a failure 
as part of my territory plan if I've not met with and learned about what's going on in every one of these targets. And so, Bobby, I like I like your approach to this. Why don't you talk about how you do this? Yeah, so uh, on a quarterly basis at my current company, we do quarterly briefings and show kind of our account base and where the customer sits and what the overall opportunity is. And I'd say over the last three years, I've kind of put together my own magic quadrant, Gartner magic quadrant of customers. And so if you can visualize, and maybe I'll do a video on this one day, but if you can visualize the left-hand side of this quadrant is the overall revenue opportunity, the overall revenue opportunity to the company. Meaning if I could sell them everything we sell today and they were to buy all of it because they thought it was the greatest and best, the, how far up that revenue chain could they go? And then the bottom line on that, on that magic quadrant chart is the revenue that I think I can get. So overall opportunity on the left, total revenues on the bottom going from left to right. And so if a company has no strategy and doesn't want to buy any of my stuff, they'd be obviously in the bottom lower left-hand corner, no opportunity and no revenues. But I do have a few customers that have unlimited potential, meaning I could sell them the whole bag and then some, which means they'd be very high from top to bottom or from bottom to top, sorry. But I know that they are committed and love my biggest competitor. And so they're not going to spend any money with me this year. So they would be high left, high on from bottom to top, but they'd be far on the left because I don't expect to get much money from them. And then likewise, I may have a fully penetrated account who isn't going to spend a lot of money this year because they've bought everything I can sell them, which means they would be, again, low from bottom to top because there's not a whole lot of opportunity left. And I might not get a lot of money from them, so they might be in the middle of the road there. And I visualize all those customers that way, and it's, everybody in the room can see exactly what I think of those companies. Love it. And so, yeah, I think we need to get an example of that at some point, maybe in one of the future upcoming series. All right, so the final category, Bobby, is the pursuits section. And this is going to vary for every seller out there, right? So, so tailor this part of the spreadsheet to match the way that you sell and the way that you work with your prospective customers. For me, uh, I put them into five broad categories uh, of pursuits, we'll say. First one is early stage. So that's an opportunity to where I know there's a project that's about to start or it's just started. It's probably going to close this fiscal year or this financial year if you're in Europe. Um, that's one section. The second section is early stage with risk. And that risk could be anything. It could be timing. Maybe the deal is going to happen. Or maybe it's an opportunity that could happen, but maybe not this year. Maybe it's next year. Maybe there's a big leadership change going on, but it's something that says we shouldn't count on this one because of some level of risk. That's the second one. And, yep. And you mean that based on timing, like you shouldn't count on it for this quarter or this time frame that you're thinking about, correct? That's right. Because it, and we'll get to kind of why that, that makes sense. But really what I'm trying to do is make an honest assessment of where am I at in my territory? If I've got, again, 80 prospective customers or 80 prospects that have been assigned to me by my, by my company, I, I want to know where they all stand. And I, they're all, you know, everything we've discussed so far is all the way left on that spreadsheet. The aim is to move everything right on that spreadsheet. And I want to get them from this risk stage to a true early stage, from early stage to discovery, from discovery to negotiating, from negotiating to the win column. And I want to see how things are progressing. I want to make sure that, again, going back to this stupid, I don't, I, I know how we got into doing PowerPoints for territory presentations because it's an easy way to share it on a projector, but it's the, it's a terrible way to manage how you run your business. We talked about it in the first episode. 
you're an entrepreneur. Like, like there's there's easier jobs out there to pick other than the sales thing that we've all picked. Um, you've got to run this like a business if you want it to be successful year after year after year after year. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So to recap, you started with disqualified, then you said passive list, yep. then narrow targets, and then pursuits. Would you categorize those as your A, B, Cs, and Ds in the opposite order, meaning A's are pursuits, B's are narrow targets, C's are passive, and D's are disqualified? Yeah, 100%. So I, that's, I, I get asked for that all the time. Give me your A's, your B's, and your C's. Uh, a good way for all of our our listeners to kind of categorize those for themselves. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes an A, in, in that regard, sometimes an A may be a narrow target, right? If we know, let's say that we've not made contact with them, but we know there's a project ongoing, that could potentially fall into the early stage piece. And again, think of this kind of almost separate than you would your Salesforce that you're using for your own opportunity management. We all have a tool, some sort of Salesforce automation tool we have to use internally to represent the pipeline and opportunities we're generating for our business. This is a way for us to run our own business and to achieve our own goals uh, based off the the mission and objectives that we set at the start of the territory plan. So last week we told everybody and kind of teased everybody about learning the math, the way Bobby and Brian think about math and the math of the business. So now you've classified all your accounts into these categories and they're on your Google sheet and you know who you're spending all your time with in the current month, week, quarter. What's the math that you're thinking about in your territory plan for a fiscal year? Yeah, and I think I think for those, uh, for, for our friends and, and present and past coworkers, I think that they wouldn't be surprised to know that we put a lot of math to the way we run our business. And it, it, this the same is very much true for this. And in fact, this may be the most the most important math we do. Um, so as a, in, in my most recent account exec role, it took me, I knew that I needed eight real deals to happen to achieve what my goals were. And my goals are different than what my quota were, was, right? We talked about that in the first episode. Your, your, your goal doesn't have to be your quota. Your goal is your goal. Because of eight deals, I know 100%, I know at a minimum or a maximum, I'll say, are gonna fall away because of something, right? Timing, leadership change, bad earnings call, uh, whatever the case may be, right? Hurricane Harvey. Hurricane Harvey flooding the streets of Houston. Um, Something's gonna happen to hurt these eight deals, but I need eight real deals to get there. So let's let's level set for just a second, just in case we we have listeners that aren't following. This is our math to how we can achieve our income goals. Not so we can make our number, not so we can close eight deals, but it's it's a math problem that we've said we want to make X. To make X, we got to do this much revenue in this time frame. So Brian's working back. If you don't if you have to have 80 deals because of the way your sales numbers work, that's fine. Use this as an example. If you if you want to send your kid to college today cuz I have a 17-year-old daughter who's about to go to college, you know that you need to have about a hundred to one hundred twenty thousand dollars in the bank today in today's money to get her through college. My thirteen-year-old probably needs one hundred twenty in the bank today that will grow so that he can go to college. We're working a math problem back to that kind of a thing. You need X amount of dollars. You want X amount of dollars. How do we get there? So in Brian's case, he's talking eight deals. That's don't exactly don't rule right. out that you need eight deals. You might need eighty deals. That's right. Yeah, or two. Um, 
and so so use use our spreadsheet here again. It's bobbyandbrian.com slash tools um, to get this pipeline workbook and to, to plug your own numbers in, right? You you have to make the call here because only you know the percentages and the way this really works out. Okay, so let's say for me, it takes eight deals to get there. Half are going to fall away, which really means getting four deals will help me achieve my goal for that fiscal year. It's going to take me eight prospect conversation conversations to find one real deal. And I'm not, I, well, I am pretty good at math, but one math problem that I'll never forget is what eight times eight is. That's 64. So you're saying if you call 64 people, you have 64 conversations you think the math works historically that you would find eight of those deals to work on, correct? That's exactly right. And and so Perfect. what people will probably mistake here is, listen, some some people may say, and look, you and I have managed sales teams before. They'll say, I, I well, that's cool that the math is at, but I don't have sixty four customers. So okay, now well, what do I do? Well, let's just let's assume you have those eighty prospects. Let's assume a, a user has forty prospects, just so we can yep, yep. call this out real quick. In in a customer that has, well, in a prospect list that has forty accounts, I'm gonna guess, assuming even if you focus on mid market, that's five hundred employees per account. So that's twenty thousand people. Let's say more math there for everybody. But let's say out of those twenty thousand people, who might influence a technical buying decision? 10% of the company? Okay, so now you have 2,000 people out of your customer list that you can call on. And I think too often as tech sellers, we get caught in the mindset of, I got to talk to the CIO, the IT director, HR, or finance, and then I'm, I'm, I'm out. What about the guy who runs sales? What about the guy who runs manufacturing, operations, purchasing, procurement for their stuff that they're buying to make their equipment? I mean, there's so many people you could be calling. Too often we think of the three people in IT, and once those don't call us back, we're, we're, we're out. I need a better account list, boss. Yeah. I mean, look, it was all the time. And, and look, I've, I've been in that position, too, to where I've, I, I'll get sucked into that myself. I, the, the point of it here is you're going to find opportunities that are going to have incongruent timelines. They're not going to buy this year. They're going to buy next year, or they're going to buy the year after that. Um, the longest deal cycle I've ever run uh, was two years uh, for end to end, and it had a fantastic ending, but it took a long time to get it done. So just expect that it's going to take an inordinate number or a large number of of real deals for you to get to that time to get to that um, that mission that you've you've laid out here. Um, yeah, and I'll say real quick to your incongruent timeline. I think I think it kills people sometimes where. They don't think about this and let the math run. The worksheet will help you see it. But you got to think, I got to call some group of these 64 contacts every week or month. I'll point everybody back to my Call 10 article and my Call 10 recording. Call 10 people every week, whether they're part of your part of your prospect list or not. But if I'm not calling somebody every week and I get wrapped around the axle of a deal, what happens at the end of that quarter, Brian, if I close that deal? Yeah, then you got a dry cupboard. Now what? Yeah, I'm looking at a I'm looking at a territory plan that I've accomplished one of my key goals and I've closed the deal, but I stopped prospecting. I stopped getting some of those deals with different timelines in my funnel, and it's killed me because I'm start I, I close I start all over I close I start all over. A, a true perennial seller doesn't let that happen. They've got a little bit in the mix all the time. 
they close their big deals, but they don't ever stop making those cold calls or prospecting calls as well. Completely agree. Um, and I, 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 one of the statements I love, I've, I've heard people say this about sellers. They'll say, oh, so-and-so has had a lucky year this year. And, and like they, even that person that, 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 that was being said about, maybe it may have had a lucky deal. We've all had a lucky deal before, right? But the, the fact is... Or I would say the other piece, I have seen somebody have a lucky comp plan where they got, they got <laughs> sure. a, a, low, a low amount of bucket in something and they blew that out and got a lot of multipliers. But again, as you're going to point out, it was a component of luck and it was only a, a, a single instance or two. No doubt. Yeah, it's just not getting confused on or allowing yourself to to get sucked in the track of a lucky deal or a lucky year, right? For people that are perennial achievers like Nadine that's come on the come on the podcast a few weeks ago, Nadine's not lucky. Like as as you as everyone heard on the podcast, she has a very intentional approach to how she runs her business. And that leads to yeah, success. And, and hoping player. hoping is not part of her strategy, I can assure you. Yep. All right, so Bobby, I've heard you uh, talk about an early mentor that gave you advice on just how do you, how do you prioritize running your own business? Yeah. So I think much like we're talking about, I need to do some cold calling. I need to obviously run perfect pursuits and I, I need to do all this at the same time. Early on when I was trying to be an A plus superstar sales rep, I had a mentor tell me you're doing a lot of good things, a lot of really good things. But what if you had more time to spend on the really, really revenue-generating, valuable things? And he told me a story about focusing on the blue chips. And the net of it uh, was probably the, the craze of the online poker gambling scene and the World Series of Poker on TV when they were winning millions and millions of dollars. And he said, what if you took all of the things you're working on and they were a poker chip and the red chip was worth 50 cents, the white chip was worth a dollar, Green chip was worth $20 and the blue chip was worth a hundred bucks. And I threw a bunch of chips on the tables. Which one would you grab? Well, of course I like money. So I'm going to grab all the blue chips first. But what if you throw a bunch of stuff on the table like that and people don't know the denominations of those chips, they're probably going to grab just as many chips as they can. That's the, the visual view they have. Grab as much as I can. But if they only end up having one blue chip and a whole bunch of low valuable white chips, their, their stack's not going to be as good as mine. So I always try and think about the blue chips now. I try and think about, will this activity produce the most revenue for me down the road? Sometimes it doesn't feel like it will, but I know if I block an hour on my calendar every Tuesday morning to make some phone calls to customers, that level of effort is a blue chip in my mind. It's not a waste waste of effort because that's going to create that pipeline and funnel for me. I also don't chase the small deals anymore. I really don't. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I mean, I think it, a lot of it goes back to the approach with narrow targets, right? You, we, the narrow, our, our account list is much bigger than the narrow targets list, but I think of my narrow targets as my blue chips. So many times we walk into a partner meeting, you know, with one of our business partners or inside sales team or our marketing team, and we try to boil the ocean, right? You've seen one of those exercises. Hey, just give me all your accounts. And let me just see who I know on LinkedIn and I'll go back and I'll, I'll check LinkedIn for you. And I'll check these. What if we gave them a list of seven blue chip prospects that we're trying to target, but we have a much more meaningful action plan around those seven prospects. 
Well, normally when I hear that request you just said, I hear them say, give me all your lists so I can focus on that. And I'm always like, well, how are you going to focus on my whole list? Yeah. You mean you want to find the low-hanging fruit and do that and then walk away? Because we need, honestly, where we have the resources, we need them to focus probably on the hard work because that's the blue chip. That's where we're going to move the needle. Um, maybe even create the needle to where we can move it. Um, I also think too often talking about what people work on and do, meaning the red chips and the white chips that aren't really the blue chips. I have people come to meetings all the time where we're not going to sell anything because that customer wants to meet with us. They've already bought everything they can buy from us. They ain't going to buy anymore for a while, but all these specialist resources go to that meeting because they're welcome. They like to talk to them. They're buddy, buddy, but we're not selling anything. We're just all wasting our time. We need to divide on those things and put those into that passive list of group of, of customers and go focus on those narrow targets, as you said. So hopefully the analogy makes sense. I think there's a good article I read out on the web a few years ago. I'll try and find and post as well, but you should be focusing on the blue chips and you should encourage your teammates to focus on the blue chips with you. Good stuff. I love it. Um, all right. So Bobby, next week um, we've got the wrap up to the series and just to tease ahead uh, one of the questions that we've had uh, that's come across in the course of this series is what happens when a territory plan goes bad? And I know I've been there before. I'm sure you've been there before. Maybe not. Maybe you've always crushed your territory. Plans. No, I've had a few ter- I've had a few territories go bad. And I'll even tease that those are the moments that made me a better territory planner because when I turn those territories around, that's where my nuggets come from, from all this work we've done so far. Good stuff. So please continue to ask us questions. Info at BobbyBride.com. We want to continue to answer these. We had three asks. If you're enjoying the podcast, please go out, rate us five stars. If you're not, give us feedback. Uh, we're looking for 100 subscribers on YouTube. We're making some pretty good hay to get there. Uh, that helps us uh, do some things technically with YouTube that we want to do, just in total transparency. And then on Facebook, it continues to be our number one uh, driver for new traffic to the website and to the podcast. Please share the things that you like, whether it's a quote, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a tool. We'd love for you to share that. Yeah, and I'll ask for one more thing, and this will benefit everybody that's listening. If you have a great book that you've read, personal or business or sales, why don't you share that book with us? We'll each read it. We'll write a review with that book. You heard Nadine talking about the Four Agreements book. I read it over the past few weeks. Amazing book, things that I haven't thought of. And without sharing that kind of content with each other, we're not going to learn about these things. So share your favorite book. Post it on Facebook or tweet it to us or send us an email, info at bobbyandbrian.com. We would really appreciate it. And we'll write your book up as a book review and give you some credit for that as well. And until next week, I would say, don't forget, average sucks. Average is the enemy. And until then, we'll see you. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Tech Sales Show with Bobby and Brian. Subscribe to their email list by going to bobbyandbrian.com and follow them on Twitter at Bobby Brian Sales. <laughs>